They were a little intense, these guys. Jesus says to them, brother will betray brother to death and a father, his own child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by everybody because of my name. Does that sound like a world that you want to live in? Endurance is Jesus's theme for these earliest followers. You will be hated by everybody, he says, but the one who learns how to endure until the end will be saved. It's not, it's not unlike Paul's theme in the letter to the Romans that we heard a little bit earlier. Paul says, we, we boast in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. It's the same word that Jesus is using, right? We could also translate it as fortitude, uh, the strength necessary to endure. Resiliency is the way that we decided in our Bible study this morning we might translate this word. Suffering produces resiliency, Paul claims, and resiliency produces evidence of a strong moral character. And the evidence of a strong moral character, Paul says, is this thing called hope. And Paul says hope does not disappoint us. Hope, hope does not embarrass us. Literally, that's what he says. Hope does not cause us shame. Because suffering, in Paul's view, and in the view of many of these ancient ancestors of ours, faced with a world in which they were watching brother betray brother to death, suffering was, suffering was, a, was a pretty universal thing in this world, and learning how to endure it was the project. Suffering wasn't seen as punishment from God for wrongdoings. It also, and I think this is important, suffering was also not seen as something sent by God to teach them a lesson. That's a, that's a kind of mechanistic deity, and our ancestors didn't have a lot of patience for that idea. But they did understand suffering as instructive, and maybe even beneficial. Suffering produced endurance, it produced resiliency, and the one who learned resiliency was the one, in Jesus' view, who was on a path towards being saved. So I was texting back and forth this week with a, a Trinity parishioner who leads a large and complex organization that is full of tension right now, seeking ways of responding to the calls for change in, in meaningful ways beyond anodyne statements, pledges of solidarity. All of this in the middle of a global pandemic, a situation that is quickly getting politicized and stuff like face masks and social distancing are becoming marks of partisan allegiance rather than common sense safety measures. Complicated times to be in leadership. And on top of everything, this individual has experienced some pretty profound personal losses and challenges that have tested his emotional and spiritual resiliency, what Paul would call his, his character, his grit. So my friend said, what, what keeps me going throughout this time is knowing that this is a period of transformation and that we have the opportunity to leverage it in positive ways in order to improve our society. He said, this is basically a test. It's a test. That's kind of what Jesus tells his disciples as he sends them out into the towns and villages to carry out the work of his movement. He says, go and do all the stuff you see me doing. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, you know, all the easy stuff, right? And he sends them out completely unprepared for this mission. He says, you can't carry any money. You only get one tunic, not a, not a second one, no spare pair of sandals, no stuff. And he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. No prepared speeches, no statements, because the words will be given to you when you need them. It's a, it's a posture of radical vulnerability, which is to say, you get no security blankets to keep you safe. He's asking them to rely utterly and completely on God. That's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty dramatic test of 
spiritual and material sufficiency. But then Jesus says, don't be stupid about this, right? Don't be romantic about it. You're going to have to be as wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove at the same time because he says you're going to get pushback. That's the real test that he's preparing them for. What happens when they get in trouble with the law? And they will. Jesus says they're going to drag you before tribunals. They're going to haul you into court. Make no mistake, right? These, these words of warning were probably written as much to the, the original hearers of Matthew's gospel. They lived several generations after Jesus and his disciples did their work. And these words are likely words that tell us a lot about how the original hearers of this gospel understood themselves vis-a-vis -vis the world they live in, right? They, these original listeners of Matthew's gospel felt themselves to be under attack, they, they felt that they were revolutionaries and, and radicals, children of this movement, under attack from all sides by a corrupt government, by a militarized police force bent on their destruction, by magistrates and judges and lawyers who did not represent the triumph of law and order to Matthew's listeners, right? They represented a destructive force of brutality and violence. This gospel's original hearers were not polite church people in their pews. They were protesters. They were rioters. They were first-century social justice warriors. They were activists working for change. They were pretty intense people. And these were the words that they remembered and put into the mouths of their founder. He said, you're going to get pushback. Some of you will be put to death if you take this stuff seriously. If you engage this mission, he says, if you follow this gospel, if you give this thing more than lip service, more than lackluster attendance on a Sunday morning. If you really want to be my disciple, which means nothing more and nothing less than doing the stuff I do in the world, that's going to get you into trouble. And we assume that that was happening for these people, right? That's the reason why Matthew's gospel is so specific in the language he uses to characterize the pushback that Jesus' followers were getting when he wrote this down. They will hand you over to councils. They will flog you in their assemblies. You will be dragged before governors and kings because of me. That's specific language. We think that stuff was actually happening. That's why they used these words to describe it. They were ready for pushback. They were experiencing pushback. Life had prepared them to get that kind of pushback. Dr. King wrote 60 years ago from the Birmingham jail, whenever the earliest Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict those Christians for being disturbers of the peace, outside agitators, that's the word he uses. But Dr. King says they pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, he says, they were big in commitment. Through their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But then, King says, you know, things are different now. He says, so often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often, he says, it is the arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. That's an indictment. Those of you who know this famous letter, the letter from the Birmingham jail, you know that Dr. King minces no words in his indictment of white Christianity. That letter was written specifically to a bunch of white clergymen in Birmingham, and it included not a few Episcopal priests and bishops who are called out by name. Right? He wrote in a time of testing, 
And that time of testing has returned once again. We don't get to pick the days that we live in. We don't get to choose the social transformations that we are privileged to witness. And we're also not given the benefit of hindsight, the ability to know when we're in the middle of a profound struggle how it's all going to come out. We hope that we're on the right side of history, but we know that history is a pretty fickle mistress. The best we can do, I think, is ask ourselves questions like, if my grandchildren ask me what I was up to when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Derek Scott and Rayshard Brooks were killed, if my grandchildren ask me what I was up to when the protests of 2020 started, when the Black Lives Matter movement finally reached a boiling point, if my grandchildren ask me what I was doing, what am I going to tell them? That I played it safe, stayed inside, chose to shut the door against voices that threatened and confused and angered me, that I got defensive, that I dug hard into old ideologies, that I resisted voices that said very gently, you know, Nathan, you might need to rethink some stuff if you want to move forward. That I qualified my support, right? All lives matter. Just as is important, as long as it doesn't mean the destruction of property. Can't we talk about reform and not abolishment? I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't answer those questions for you. I'm not even sure how I'm answering them for myself right now. Some days I, I feel kind of caught between two worlds. A couple weeks ago, I was, it was that first Tuesday night of the protests, the night on the, the Burnside Bridge when thousands of people laid down on the bridge, and I found myself out for a run that night, and I saw this crowd standing on the bridge as I passed underneath it. Usually when I go to protests, right, I show up in my collar, which is kind of like Jesus's, in Jesus's terms, is like carrying an extra tunic around with you, right? It's a means of official identity. Sometimes it acts as a protection. You know, nobody wants to mess with you when you're dressed like a priest. That's why I wear it. But this time, I'm just in my running gear, right? I'm just another 30-something Portlander in a crowd of thousands of, I mean, of kids is what it felt like to me. Most of them a good decade younger than me. It's one of the first times I felt so viscerally old. But that's a story for another time. The language that these protesters were using was strident. It was inflammatory. All cops are bastards, they chanted. White silence equals death. Defund. De defund, abolish, destroy. And I found myself, as, as my friend Liz says, getting all up in my white feelings. I decided it was not a moment to judge in that moment. I needed to be there. I needed to bear witness. I needed to listen. So I did. That's one world, right? It's the world of protest. And it's hard for me not to see the intensity and the conviction of Jesus' original disciples in these voices and the demands of these protesters. Jesus' marching orders to his disciples in Matthew's Gospel read so differently to me this year than they ever have. It turns out Matthew's Gospel is like an instruction manual for how to stage the revolution. And then we come to church. And this is the world I feel like I belong in, right? I've, I've always, to be honest, felt kind of like an imposter at a protest. I, you know, despite a couple situations in which I, I found myself over the past, over, past couple years, my instincts run in a, in a pretty conservative direction. I don't like protests. I don't like crowds. They make me very anxious. My instinct is to protect and conserve the things that I treasure the most, stuff like liturgy and hymns and stained glass and gardens and law and order, history and tradition. That's the stuff that, that drew me into the Episcopal Church 20 years ago when everything in my world felt like it was a chaotic, disorderly thing. I was a college student. My world was in total free fall. The Episcopal Church gave me a home and a structure. 
And this church in which I've made my home coddles my conservationist instincts. It's a world that's made up, not exclusively, but largely of well-meaning white people who are all of us struggling in our various ways with the question of what this moment means for us, what it's going to require of us. And I don't think we've answered that question yet, not decisively. There is something maybe that, that is calling to us in this other vision out there, this more intense, more radical vision of what it means to be the kingdom of God, to be the church, a vision that's embodied right now by a new generation of activists who are out there demanding change. So maybe it's, you know, the yearning, the, the conviction, the determination of those voices that calls to us. Maybe we remember what it felt like to feel that convicted. Maybe there's a, there's a kind of romance in the, in the truth-telling that we had half forgotten. Maybe when we were, you know, when we were young enough, we felt that way, and we kind of wish we were out there marching with them again. Or maybe we're horrified by what we're seeing. We're just waiting for it all to die down. I think my friend was right. I think this is a test. We are being tested. Our ability to endure, our, abil our willingness to, to rise to an occasion that demands grit and character, our capacity for nourishing hope, letting down our guards, stepping away from our defensiveness, putting aside our fears. Because this change is going to happen, right? Make no mistake, we are watching our world change very quickly, right before our eyes. God's reign of justice is not going to wait around for white people to figure out what we think about it, right? It's already here. So the question for us is not, how do we make this thing happen? It's not up to us to make this thing happen. I think the question is, how do I make sure that I'm not standing in the way? How do I make sure that I don't squander the opportunity, the chance of a lifetime for my life to be changed by the power of God? working in my midst. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? That is the message that Jesus gave to his original followers. That's the message for today, if we have ears to hear it. God's justice is here already. It is not up to us to bring it about. It's only up to us to announce it and rejoice at its arrival. Jesus was startlingly clear, very specific, about what God's kingdom looked like when it began to take physical form. He said, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Friends, that's us. We're the blind ones. We're the lame ones. We're the ones covered with the sores of thousands of years of disease and privilege that have eaten away our souls and inoculated us against the voices of suffering people. We're the deaf ones, we're the dead ones, the, the poor ones who long to have good news preached to us. I think the good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are already out there at work. The good news is in abundance if I have the eyes to see it and the, the imagination to think beyond my contentment and my outdated assumptions and the willingness to take a fresh look at what is right in front of my face. I can imagine a world beyond a militarized police force. I can imagine a world in which the color of somebody's skin does not instantly render her two and a half times more likely to be shot and killed by an officer, six more times likely to be incarcerated, ten more times likely to live below the poverty line. I can imagine a world in which churches get into trouble with the government because we are unwilling to shut up about what the gospel looks like in people's lived and daily existences. I, I can imagine that world. I think you can too. 
So what gets us there? Jesus says it's not magic. It's not luck. It's endurance. Paul says that's the only thing that's worth bragging about, right? The ability to endure. The ability to stick it out until the end. He says we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. It's the only legitimate kind of hope that there is. Everything else is actually a little bit idolatrous when you get right down to it, whether that's a a liberal vision of the intrinsic goodness of human beings or the conservative vision of independent self-determination. There is a vision of hope that is beyond progressive and conservative. It's beyond the, the sometimes opposed worlds of activists and churchgoers, beyond any proximate project that seeks to advance the kingdom of God in a tangible way. It's the only kind of hope that actually makes a difference. It's the hope that comes when the love of God is poured into my heart by the working of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So we don't have to worry about what we're going to say. What we're going to say does not matter. Stuff's going to come. Change is going to come if we learn how to endure it. But we are being tested, I think. And my deepest prayer is that this time of testing will not find us asleep. And that when the history books are written, they look back on these well-meaning white churches of ours and say, that was the moment. That was the moment when the Spirit was poured into their hearts. And they started to wake up with an intensity that scared the people around them. They started not just to preach the gospel, they started to live it. That was the moment, they'll say. That was the moment when when the kingdom of God, God's reign of justice, came crashing into American streets and American churches and American kitchens and homes, and ordinary people learned something they had not known before. They discovered what it actually looks like, what it feels like to be transformed. 